Good morning. Where else can we go? Love that uh, reference to John chapter 6. Christ has just shared with the uh, crowds that were following him up to that point in his ministry that his real purpose in coming was to give himself in death to atone for their sins. And that didn't sit well with the people. They just evaporated back into their villages and pretty soon you see an image as is portrayed in John's gospel of Christ and his 12 walking down a, a dusty road and Christ turns and looks and sees them following him. Of course, he asks those immortal words as, why do you still follow? And the response is just what we sang. Where else can we go, Lord, for words of eternal life? Uh, so true, so true. Hopefully this morning you're here with us to hear exactly those kind of things. As we get started, though, today, we want to just take a moment to recognize um, our seniors, those who are graduating. Many of us have been to graduation celebrations this weekend and past weekend and perhaps even this coming weekend, uh, whether it's at the University of Iowa or one of our many area high schoolers. Uh, we just want to say for a moment, congratulations to all of our graduating seniors. So let's give them a round of applause. That's just a great accomplishment. I'd like to just uh, have a word of prayer for them as we kind of think about conditioning or commissioning them for what's coming in their lives. So I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 1, just a word of blessing. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we all know, getting launched into a new phase of life is not easy. Uh, there's many challenges, many uh, opportunities to either run full bore with Christ or perhaps some are thinking, well, this would be a great time to find out what else is out there in the world. So we need to be lifting up these graduates in prayer, earnest prayer for them, for their families, uh, for God's sovereign grace as uh, they meet new roommates possibly, uh, go to different towns, different cities, and uh, we just want them to uh, make wise decisions. So let's just have a word of prayer for them this morning. Join me if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the uh, accomplishments of our graduates. We thank you for the work they've put in to get to this point. But Father, we know that uh, the next steps are so important in their lives. Uh, Father, they can lead them to righteousness and fulfillment if they follow you, but they can also be steps of danger, Lord, steps of rebellion sometimes. And I know just from my years in high school ministry, Lord, how important, how critical decisions that are going to be made this coming fall will be in their lives. So we commission them into your hands, Lord. We ask that you would, uh, in your sovereign grace, just uh, dictate who their roommates might be, what their jobs might be, if they're heading into the military. Father, just all those different steps, and we commit them to you. We ask for your hand of blessing on them. Father, may they find wise friends. May they find able instructors. But most of all, Father, may they cling to the words of eternal life that are found in your word. May they be students and masters of your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This morning, as Will announced, we're in Acts chapter 9. He had me a little concerned there when he kind of made it sound like we were taking a break from the book of Acts. When you're the preacher sitting there and you hear that, you're like, oh my goodness, you know, did I read the schedule wrong? So thankfully that is not the case, but we are in a major breaking place in this book. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts um, are the story of the church as it has begun and it's growing but it's largely an effort of the Jewish community in discovering who Jesus is, what he's about, and that spreading throughout all the nations of the world. But the first eight chapters, I would say the main hero of those stories is the Apostle Peter, the early leader of the church. But now as we come into chapter 9, we're going to change things. It's going to be a radical break with what's preceded as one man by the name of Saul has an encounter with Christ. So the question I have for us today is what does God have to do to get your attention? Let me say that again. What does God have to do to just grab your attention, to make you sit up and take notice? This morning's story is an amazing one but maybe is not as unique as we might think. God will do things to get our attention. I think back in my life in the several times that I can think of where God just said seriously, Dave, look up, pay attention. I want you. I want you to think about what you're doing, what you're saying. I want you to think about your life's direction, and I'm going to make a major change. Now, you think, well, Saul's not like me. Yeah. Perhaps he's not so far different from most of us. If we remember the story of Saul, he was a man of rare devotion to the word of God. He was a Pharisee, a highly trained Pharisee, a master of the law, uh, probably had the privilege of an education that few had in his day. He knew the Torah. He knew Mosaic law. And he felt like it was his job to protect that law from anybody who would challenge it. Uh, he was a Jew. He followed Judaism. And he was a protector of the temple. The Pharisees identified uh, just very closely with the temple practices of their day. And Jesus probably, more than anything else that he said or did, put his life in jeopardy because of his uh, references against the temple that the temple would be destroyed, that the temple would be unnecessary for the life with God that he was preaching. That led him to being led to the cross and dying there. And Paul, or Saul, would have been one of those who would have been applauding Jesus' death. Yes, another one who was leading people astray is gone. So let's look at chapter 9. What we're going to look at as we start today, though, is an understanding <coughs> that Luke, in writing this book, is going to give us three different versions of the same story. So we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 1. I hope you're reading in your Bibles, because I'm going to zip through these. I'm not going to, at this point, slow down too much, so read along with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and by that he simply means those that follow Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now as he went on his way to, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Great story. Many of us are probably somewhat familiar with this tale, but are we familiar with the next version in Acts chapter 22? I'm going to jump over there and do a quick read of that one. Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 6, Luke writes this, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those, excuse me, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus. <coughs> And there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came in to Damascus. And yet once again, if you want to read a third version of it, we jump to chapter 26. And reading in verse 12, Luke writes this. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom <coughs> I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Three different accounts of the same story, all written by Luke. All of them give us a little bit different angle on the story. Now, if you're used to reading the Gospels, you're used to seeing uh, similar accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yet told from a different perspective. And Biblical scholars sometimes have no end of joy in pointing out the discrepancies between each of those stories in the gospel accounts. But even in the book of Acts, we have three accounts of the same story in a relatively few uh, number of chapters, all written by the same man. And yet they differ 
right? There's some things they differ in. I, I don't know if the slide is up, but I have a slide there that uh, just tells us the things that they differ in. Who exactly fell to the ground? What did they see? Uh, what did they hear? The commissioning of Ananias, uh, which I did not read that part, but I will get to that a little bit later, to come and, and come alongside of Saul and help him to understand what exactly had happened and so forth. So all of these things were occurring, and yet they seem a little different. Let's just take some things into consideration this morning that we need to understand in order to make sense of this as we read them. First of all, in Luke's day, minor details being in harmony with one another wasn't a big issue. <clears throat> if you read ancient Roman and Greek historians, you will discover that it's more important to them to have rhetorical effect on their listeners than it is that their writings be 100% the same if they're recounting the same story or the same event or the same speech. What Caesar says in one speech may be slightly different than when it's recounted later on in another story. So Luke does not feel that pressure. He doesn't believe that he's actually writing uh, <clears throat> a history that has to agree in every point. Now, this was done because of rhetorical effect, like I said. This was designed to be read aloud to the people who would listen to the book of Acts in their church services, in their gatherings. Somebody would stand up, and they would take, for instance, chapter 9, and they would start speaking it, usually from memory. But if not, if they were lucky enough to have an actual scroll of the writing, a codex, they might start reading it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, and everybody's in anticipation of what's going to happen because they know the story so well, let alone they get to chapter 22. And now Paul is speaking in the first person. And he tells his own story. Chapter 26, again, Paul is speaking in defense of his own life and what he's doing as a chosen mission and telling people, this is what I did. Now, in Luke's mind, as he's writing this, nothing could be more boring than to have all three accounts word for word the same. I mean, that would have been pretty easy for him to back up as he's writing the section that we now call chapter 22 and say, well, let's see, what did I write earlier about the conversion of Saul? I'll just write that again here in the Greek, and that way we will have 100%. No, 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 no. It was considered high value for a reading, a dramatic reading, if there were slight variations in the text. So it should come as no surprise that there are questions between these three versions of what exactly happened. Now note this, that the dialogue between Saul and Jesus is almost 100% the same word for word. There's no change in the fact that Jesus is asking Saul, why is he persecuting him? Saul's response, and then Jesus telling him what to do next. One of the passages tells us very much in detail what Ananias was supposed to do in response to this, his calling, his commissioning to go and find Saul. Uh, another one leaves Ananias completely out of the story. Uh, one of us gives a great detail more about what Jesus actually says to Saul in that vision and so forth. 
So I just want you to be ready in case you run into something like I every once in a while I'll run into a student who says that he's taking New Testament at the U and this will be brought up and I just want you to have an understanding three accounts of the same experience of Saul that one shows you how important the conversion of Saul is to the story of the book of Acts but two how ancient histories would be written and why they were designed to be spoken out loud and how that would keep the audience on the edge of their chair so Luke's philosophy here is basically, I'm going to give you three, one, two, and three, chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26. And when you hear all three together, you now, for the first time, have a full understanding of what happened. No one in and of themselves is complete. You're going to learn the full story only when you get to the end of the book, right? Right? Isn't that the best kind of book to read? You get to the very end, and then you discover, oh. Sometimes we feel a little cheated, you know, if we're reading a murder mystery or something. We say, wait a minute, you didn't tell us that Mrs. Carlyle wasn't really there that day, you know, or something like that. They reveal something new. Well, Luke isn't quite there. He's telling us the essentials. But he does want us to have an understanding. You have to read all three versions to get the complete story of Saul. So, back to chapter 9. I think that helps us to have an understanding of where we could go with this, some of the criticisms about it, but also have a, an appreciation for the writing style of the ancients. Back to chapter 9. Let's look at a little bit here. Let's try to have an understanding of when this happened. Most scholars, and I think I'm most comfortable with this, would say that Jesus was crucified probably April 7th of 30 AD. That seems to fit most of the chronological records. Gives us enough room for things. Especially if we put Jesus' birth uh, years before zero, right? I would put it somewhere between 6 and 3 BC, before Christ, but he's actually there. And that allows all of the chronology with Herod and so forth. So if Jesus is crucified on April 7th of 30 AD, probably in one year, is when Stephen suffers martyrdom. We've already been through that in the book of Acts. Stephen, great preacher, comes out and makes a strong stand for Christ in the face of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin decide that his reward for this will be to be stoned. So he is killed. He has a vision of where he's going into heaven. And it's a great story, right? And that's about one year after the death of Christ. Another year goes past, and that's probably where we are in this Damascus story. Paul's life is laid out in this book of Acts, and it's pretty easy when we take this account with the other epistles that Paul writes to get an understanding of Paul's life. Paul has the conversion experience. He goes into Damascus. He awaits the coming of Ananias, uh, his baptism, uh, his commissioning, he waits uh, for three years. If you go to Galatians 1.18, it says we stood there for about three years before we went on and so forth. And then there's another span of 14 years, and then you can get to the Apostolic Convention, the Jerusalem Council, and so forth. Uh, it's pretty easy to track Saul's life. We have an understanding of what he is and where he's going. So this 
for our purposes right here this morning, is about two years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. In that time period, we get a little snippet of where Saul is. We can conjecture some other things. Saul may have heard Jesus actually preaching in the temple square. Uh, we know that Saul was born in Tarsus, a major commercial metropolitan center in its day, a place of great education. Uh, it was kind of maybe it's too strong to say the Harvard of its day, um, the Cambridge, Massachusetts of its day, but it was similar to that. Everybody in Tarsus seemed to be educated, and Saul and his family were no different. Saul was probably sent away to study at the feet of great Pharisees. Uh, he had all of the accreditation that he needed, probably moved to Jerusalem at some point as a young man, and was there to see such unrest. This is probably what fueled his frustration and his anger. He felt a righteous indignation when he heard Jesus preach. He certainly was there when Saul suffered martyrdom. He was the young man holding coats to the side of the rest who had uh, decided to pick up stones and according to the temple guard commissioning, stoned Stephen. So Saul's on the scene. He's been around. He's not just like arrived in Jerusalem and uh, decided to take this mission on. But part of what he's doing is to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. There's a couple things we want to look at. If we look at verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats, it's an idiomatic expression. Uh, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Breathing threats. Right away, Luke is trying to help his readers recall images from the Old Testament of breathing fire, the judgment of God. No doubt, Saul saw himself as being just that, the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God on these people. Still breathing threats and murder against whom? The disciples of the Lord. Now, it wasn't within Saul's legal rights to kill anyone. He, I doubt if he was out there actually executing people. But what he could do is arrest them. <coughs> Excuse me. He could get them to come back to Jerusalem and stand trial before the Sanhedrin and perhaps suffer the same fate as Jesus Christ did, death at the hand of the Romans for disrupting the Jewish population. So it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, here's the purpose statement, if he found any belonging to the way, and we don't see that phrase, the way, too often in Scripture. In fact, it's only used in the book of Acts. Right? Now, if you came to Christ like I did in the 70s, you might have been familiar with the way New Testament or Bibles that were so popular back then. Uh, but... Right away, I remember uh, just thinking when I read this for the first time as a teenager, oh yeah, I belong to the way. I have the way Bible. <laughs> it's so cool. Right. So Paul is out, Saul's out there trying to get these guys, arrest them, and bring them back to stand trial. Men or women. He sounds like he's uh, fairly cutthroat in his attitude. He doesn't care, doesn't have empathy for people who are families. He's just thinking that they are going against the word of God. Perhaps he had the same zeal like Phineas of the Aaronic priesthood 
Remember that Old Testament story in the days of Moses when an Israeli man took a Midianite woman and they decided they were going to come together despite what the law said. And Phineas grabs a, a spear, a lance, and he runs and he thrusts it through the bodies of both people. And he is praised for his zealousness. He is a man of God. And I think Saul, if there's anything we can get from this opening chapter, is that Saul sees himself as a modern day, or at least in his day, a present day Phineas. I am going to defend the Lord. Doesn't matter. Men, women, I will arrest them all. He might have them brought bound to Jerusalem. So he has letters in his hands which will, he will give to the temple authorities or the synagogue authorities in Damascus. Say, I represent the temple, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. The high priest has commissioned me to do this job. Now, Damascus is the first major city where we see Christianity uh, having a presence. He's not going there by mistake. It's not like it's the closest city to Jerusalem. They must have had reports that there was a large Christian enclave in this city, in Syria. And so they probably thought they were safe there. They had escaped after Jesus had been crucified. They were probably a little leery of hanging around in the Jerusalem area. But now they were in Damascus, and Saul wanted to prove to them that there was no place they could hide, no place that they could escape to. He was coming. And the reputation of Saul spread everywhere. People knew and had heard about him. If you were a Christian, you lived in fear of him. And so that's where we find ourselves. And so he's on the road. We're not told exactly where, how far outside of Damascus he might be, how far on his journey he had traveled, but we can assume that he's fairly close. And he's with companions. Those companions are probably temple guards, just like the same men that came that night to arrest Jesus. And it says... Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. This is a powerful thing. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that, I kind of think like a spotlight hitting Saul. Like all of a sudden he is encircled by this divine light. But I would contend that from reading the other passages, that probably what's happening here is he's encountered jesus christ in his full glory you remember the story of the transfiguration back when jesus was with his apostles and peter and john and so forth went off and in a private way jesus reveals in his only time doing this what he is like in his essence he reveals himself he is light and there in that transfiguration he is a bright light and here he is a bright light. Now, Paul says in chapter 26 that this light was like the light of the sun. It was intense. Uh, the light of Christ is not like any other light that we can encounter. It's stronger than the light of our sun. It's stronger than anything that we can make man-made. It eats darkness. And this light just overwhelms Saul. I don't know what time of day it was was it nighttime and his pupils had already dilated to see in the dark was it noon and he was already trying to find shade from the light but whatever time of day it was suddenly uh, just immediately a light from heaven shines around him 
and falling to the ground the second thing that happens he falls to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me always in a theophany in a in an experience with God that we see in scripture what's the response of humans who come into close contact with deity with even an angel they fall to the ground in fear they don't know what this is it's nothing that they'd ever encountered before and so Saul's no different he falls to the ground and he hears Jesus say in an emphatic way his repetition of his name lets us know that Jesus is serious here Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you Lord now if you're a good Jew if you're a defender of the Torah when you see this voice or hear see this light and hear this voice you have to wonder did God himself come to you like Moses being hid in the cleft of the rock is that what's happening here so I don't think he really believed that Jesus was anything to be feared. He certainly didn't think of him as being God. So it's a natural question. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I love that line, and I'll tell you why. When Jesus says, I am he who you are persecuting, Jesus is identifying with whom? With his church, with you with me you see the church is the body of Christ and sometimes we think of these well these are just nice ways uh, of saying things that make us feel like we belong and that things are really important to Christ he is the head of the church and so forth but Jesus actually is identifying with his church now Saul had never met Jesus probably face to face when he was on earth he certainly hadn't been persecuting him so we can't interpret this in any other way than the fact that Saul was persecuting the church was the same as Saul is persecuting Jesus Christ and Jesus lets him know that Saul you're persecuting me why are you persecuting me my church Saul's whole worldview changes and melts away in instant in seconds the church is Jesus wow now we're not told much more there but if we go back to chapter 26 we can read a whole dialogue or at least a statement by Christ in which he explains now that you understand things so the only thing that we are really able to derive from this is that Saul who was so zealous for the things of the law for the Torah, for Jehovah God, for Yahweh, now in an instance is convinced of Jesus' claims that he is actually God. Sometimes people will try to tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus wasn't really on that track. People later in the church will elevate him so that it can fit their mythological status of who Jesus is. It's sort of a little bit of a hagiography. But the truth is, Saul, in this instance, recognizes the deity of Jesus because it forever changes his life. There's no pushback. There's no show me how, like Thomas the doubting apostle tried. It's instant acceptance. You, you, you're Jesus. You're God. 
The church is of God. All those thoughts had to have happened in his mind as he's putting it all together and having this divine experience. And Jesus, without further words, says, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Now, what did his companions see? If you read the three accounts, they seem to differ a little on this. Some saw the light, but couldn't understand or didn't hear the words. Some heard a sound, is how I would interpret this, but didn't actually hear what Jesus was saying to Saul. This message was personal. It was directed at Saul, not the people around him, but at Saul. As far as we know, Saul's companions did not have this salvific experience. His companions did not instantly see Jesus as God. All they know is that their leader, this man who was fire-breathing and murderous and wanting to arrest people and so zealous for God, had fallen to the ground, and a great noise had happened. It takes us back to the baptism of Christ, right? Where it says that uh, the Holy Spirit came down, you know, like a dove. And there was a voice heard from heaven in which God basically says, Jesus is my son. Same thing happens at the transfiguration when God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Once again, this voice from heaven is speaking to Saul and his companions really can't make heads or tails of it. All they know, what they're left with is this. This man is blind at this point. If you drop down to the end of this paragraph, uh, in verse 9 you see, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That's a humbling thing. Uh, the man who was so feared <coughs> is now limited, handicapped, if you will. I asked you earlier, what would God have to do to get your attention? What does God have to do to get you to notice? Not only does Saul have to have this dialogue with Jesus himself, not only does there a bright light, a great voice, but also he's humbled by the lack of sight. Now, a lot of you know that when I was a young man, I suffered an accident with a bow and arrow, lost my right eye, take to the hospital. What happened is the, <coughs> the optic nerve behind the eye, because of the pressure of that rubber-tipped arrow, uh, squishing up against the back of the eye socket, split that out. And I instantly lost sight in that eye. But while I was in the hospital, they feared something called sympathetic blindness, right? Some of you are familiar with that. So I had a little eggshell cup, as my mom called it, put on my good eye, and it was taped onto my head, and I had to live with that for nearly two months. So in a sense, I was blind. Now, I knew I wasn't totally blind, and I would cheat, right? My hospital roommate, a teenager, was watching TV, so I found a way to flick the edge of that cup off my eye a little bit, and looked to the side, and as soon as the doctor walked in, I pushed the tape back on. But for the most part, I couldn't see. If we went anywhere, I had to be led. Um, I, I had to get used to voices. Who's speaking? Oh, I, I recognized my mom's voice. But there was a constant stream of people, nurses, visitors, relatives, coming to see me. 
and I couldn't see them. And I didn't, you know, know what was going to be my future. But as a little kid, you don't worry about that stuff too much. I mean, the, the full impact of that doesn't really hit you. Fast forward to 1995. Now I'm 35 years old. I've had a prosthetic eye all my life. I'm pretty used to it. And all of a sudden, my retina kind of explodes. Uh, my good eye. And I lose sight until I have laser surgery. Same thing happens again eight years later. More surgery, more blindness. And the doctor says, you know, the truth is your eye is degenerating. You can't read as much as you used to. You're going to have to take it easy. And you're left with those thoughts. What am I going to do now? I mean, my life is reading. My life is uh, studying the Word of God. How do I do that? And, you know, thoughts come to your mind. Well, I'll start getting Braille Bibles, and I'll, I'll have to listen to books on tape and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, you know what life isn't going to be the same. My old senior pastor in Nebraska, after my retina blew, he decided that he would uh, kind of bring attention to that by asking everybody, if you had to lose one of your senses, if you had to become deaf or you couldn't speak or you couldn't see, which one would you think is the worst? And it was like 99 to 1. They all thought going blind was the worst. And of course, that made me feel great. You know, I was like, well, <laughs> glad, you know. What, what, what point were you illustrating there, you know? But he meant it well. It's tough. Saul, in his day, there were no helps. There was no medicines. There wasn't anything written in Braille. No one had any sensitivity to those who were handicapped. It basically meant that he would have no ways of supporting himself. And no one felt sorry for Saul. He was not the kind of man that you would think, ah, oh, you know, we're going to have to do something for him. Now, I think most people were probably glad that he was off the scene. We don't have to take care of him. But here's the thing. I think more than even the bright light and the voice, it's this blindness that gets Saul's attention. If Jesus had just talked to him out of the light, as startling as that was, the likelihood is that after a day or two, you know how that goes, you've been to a retreat and you felt like you and God were just one and one, you know, we were friends, da 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 da, gone to a summer camp, wow, God and I are so close, you heard that sermon, I'm changing things, God. You've got my attention. But after a day or two, week or two, you're kind of back to where you were. But you lose your sight? That's humbling. That's scary. Jesus got Saul's attention. And it says that he neither ate nor drank. Saul realized his life had changed. Now, if we continue reading in the story, we'll read about how Ananias was called by God to come to Saul, which took a lot of bravery, because the last he knew, that would have been certain death to go into Saul's presence. But Jesus changes Saul's name to Paul, gives him a new mission. Ananias comes in, and for the first time, we see someone who's not an apostle lay their hands on a man and can just give him the Holy Spirit. Wow. And Paul's life, from this point on, will be different. I ask you again, what has God had to do to get your attention? 
We don't like to think of it in terms like this. We think of God as love, kind, blah, blah, blah. But I'm telling you, there are times in our life when God gets our attention. He needs us to sit up, take notice. He needs us to change the course of our life. I meet people all the time who have what we would normally on a human level think of as tragic events happen. But really, when we think about it, when we hear testimony down the road, we'll hear sometimes those same people say, no, God got my attention. There were things that I needed to change in my life. He's in the business of changing lives. My challenge to us this morning as we read this conversion story is to note that Jesus will pursue you. He will break into your life and he may call you to something different. The question, and the only question is, how does he do that for you? What's going to happen to get your attention? The Apostle Paul will go from being the man who inflicted damage to the man taking damage in the name of Jesus. His life will be given in service and his death will come early because he's obedient to Christ's calling. The church today needs people who are similarly convicted, commissioned, and ready to serve Christ with all that they have. We live in a world that needs to hear the gospel. And so we need smart men and women who will go in and assail places like universities, schools. We need able men and women who will be able to do great works for Christ. What is your calling? What is it that Jesus wants from you? That's a matter of prayer. It's a matter of listening. My prayer for all of us today is that we will do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word, the example that Paul sets in his conversion. Lord, we're confronted with Jesus' claims of deity with his giving his life. Where else can we go to get the words of eternal life? Father, even those of us who are believers and we are somewhat obedient to your calling in our lives, maybe we've let time pass, whole decades pass, where we have not been radical for you. When we don't listen, Father, do what is necessary to call our attention to you so that we can be on that path of serving you with our entire heart and mind, body and soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.